morning. Welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic show for you today, and we should all be very excited because Alimia Lauren is back with us. Good to see you. Morning. And we're uh, kind of matching today. I know. It's oh, beautiful. Nice. It's nice. <laughs> happy accident. I'm happy to be back in the chair. Today, we'll discuss the row ruling with our Rising panel and Marianne Wilson Williamson. By now, we know that many states have outlawed abortion, which saw a wave of protests over the weekend. One of those states is South Dakota. Governor Kristi Noem weighed in on her state's abortion laws on Face the Nation. Let's watch. Now that the Supreme Court has made this decision, the power to make these decisions really goes to each individual state. We've already talked about that in South Dakota. Uh, what's the state's role in this and what can we do to help these individuals that are in these situations, get them the health care that they need to to help their baby be born healthy and help them be parents or help them choose a loving family to raise that child. So you're still so, figuring out the specifics. Uh, Okay. Well, and, you know, this trigger law was put into place years ago, uh, and it was to go into a, into law as soon as the Supreme Court made a decision such as it did. So okay. that's the debate and discussion that we're having. But I think what's incredible and what's going on is that the people will decide, you know, yeah. elected officials at the state level is who they'll be talking to to decide what their state's laws look like. South Dakota's mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, under our past several years and have stood for life and defending life. And yeah. I think we'll continue to have those debates on how we can support these mothers and what it means to really make sure that we're not prosecuting mothers ever in a situation like this when it comes to abortion, that it will always be focused towards those doctors who knowingly break the law to perform abortions in our state. You uh, reassured by Governor Nome's words? What a, what, a, what a ridiculously empty sentiment. Like, we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to prosecute the mothers, but we will prosecute the doctors that do what, what these women need. And, oh, we're going to help these women, you know, become mothers or give, give up their children to options they don't want. And then you say, oh, you know, we'll let the people decide. That's why we have a trigger law in place to immediately get rid of the right and give them one of two options, both of which are what we want and not what they want. Empty. So, obviously, we're going to be talking about abortion about Roe all day. Um, okay. We have a lot of guests to address it, so I'm not sure which aspect of it we should even get into right, right. now. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, I, what, what, what the governor is saying and a lot of people on the right are pointing out is that, you know, look, we've been hearing about, I hear a lot on the show from my co-host, from whoever is sitting here, the, the importance and the power of democracy and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the obstructionist right uses the legal system and the gerrymandered system and all the impediments to prevent, to prevent uh, government from functioning, to prevent mm -hmm. uh, uh, political figures from just implementing laws that people want. Well, this is a case now that this issue has been turned back to the democratic process, right? And now and now you can have peoples and states and different governments experiment with different policies. I will probably think a lot of them go way too far and not agree with them. But aren't I just supposed to, isn't my will supposed to be reflected as one voter among many, as it is the case with all these other issues that the left and Democrats think should be, should be voted on? And is it or will it? I think it's, you know, I think we have to be honest and stop pretending that states' right or the state government is anything other than a government, right? Oh, it's not mm -hmm. the federal government imposing its will on you, but, oh, it won't be the state government imposing its will as though if the people, you know, largely say, oh, we do want the right to abortion, which, by the way, the large majority of the country does support, but yet you see at least 26 states poised to ban it. So let's not pretend right. like they're in the business of listening to what the people want. They want to do what they want to do, and they've, they've changed the conversation like, oh, it's not the federal government, so it's somehow less government imposing its will on you. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I... 
the majority of the country, right, supports, uh, wants abortion uh, to be an option in many cases. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is where majority, there, there's actually a, right, there's a, people who are, have conflicted feelings about this issue. Yes. I think there's a lot of people who are like that and, yes, think it should be a legal option, at least up until a point. And I expect that many states will, uh, many states will still allow it completely right up until the end. Uh, many other states will, some states at least, will, yes, will have extreme bans from like the very beginning. And, but I, right, if they go too far, then those legislators can be voted out of office, right? If they don't reflect the will of the people, well, you're, you're rolling your eyes at me. I don't know how it works. Hey, yeah, Robbie, in, in the states that already gerrymander and do everything they can to suppress the votes of particular populations, at the end of the day, right, if it were about what the people want, if it were about what the people want, you would give them a choice. And then we would, people would do what they want. People would either have the choice to have abortions if they want them or not. If you were really interested, this South, South Dakota lady, um, in doing what the people mm -hmm. want, you already know there were people who want abortions, scheduled up abortions instead, just sitting here having a conversation about how you will help support them be mothers or give away their children, both options you know that they do not want. So you are not in the business of doing what the people want. You're doing what it is that South Dakota and the state legislature, always, mm -hmm. state legislature always wanted to do, which is why they put the trigger law there to enforce their own wills and wishes, not that of the people. So, well, I, I, you know, I'd love to show up to the My Body, My Choice rally, but I didn't have my vaccine card. Listen, me, listen, so Robbie. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't, we yeah, don't need you, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, Kim Iverson is going to hit later. Good. So we won't talk about that too much, but the surrendering of Democrats on the bodily autonomy kind of issue in the face of COVID is, I think, not totally irrelevant to this conversation. We'll, we'll have that. We'll talk, we'll talk about, about it about in my that. radar, your radar, everyone's radar. Biden, uh, however, is reportedly worried about the ruling digging into contraception. According to the Boston Globe, Justice Clarence Thomas's opinion uh, actually opens the high court to reviewing other precedents. I, he mentioned them in his in his uh, what he wrote, including the rulings in Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the case that reserved the right for married couples to buy and use contraception. I think probably all couples should be uh, able to. But again, this is just right. I, and Thomas wasn't saying it's not saying this is going to be prohibited. Just that. The Constitution is silent on this issue. Nothing from his, his view is that. No, the he said we had a duty to correct. He he not only right. voted to to overturn this, right? So you know where his position is. And then he said we have a duty to correct the errors that are the other decisions uh, that made right. Way for the Roe. decision saying that the Constitution says you must allow uh, people to be able to buy contraception and you must allow abortion. Thomas is just saying That's that the Constitution does not say that you have to allow those things. For, so state legislatures and the federal government can for, ban them if they want. Now, I, first that's a crazy policy, and we shouldn't do that. Also, it's wrong. First of all, we have a Constitution that explicitly provides for the fact that not every right that we have is enumerated in the Constitution. Right. And that's what Griswold versus I mean, it does explicitly say guns was the one Democrats and, most and, eager and, to And enjoy. That and enjoy, one is actually written in there. You know what? And that's the one. Well, but not really. You it's, don't want me to get started on the Second Amendment today, Robbie? So made me put my lawyer hat on. Yeah. But sticking to Griswold, right? Griswold versus Connecticut does not say that we have a written constitutional right to contraceptives. What it says is there are certain rights that have not been enumerated and provided for in the Constitution that date back before we even had a Constitution. There are certain human natural rights, and the one that they find is that we have a right to privacy in the sense of our intimate decisions, the decisions we make in our personal bedrooms, whether or not we want to have children, whether or not we want contraceptives. And that, when they recognize that right to privacy, that right in Griswold, that's what made for substantive due process and these other rights. It never said that, oh, we have an explicit right in the Constitution. 
Constitution right. and it says that and now you get to make this argument that, oh, it was written in the Constitution so we don't have it. Additionally, there are a ton of rights, ton of rights empowering many of the system that we have now that is not in the Constitution, including judicial review. So well, I mean, Rights are cool. Again, I, I think privacy is important. I, I think it'd be great if the Constitution was a little clearer on that front, but many conservative legal scholars, uh, Thomas being one of them, think that that was you know, reading in reading something into the, that just isn't there. It was an excuse to find a way to establish that abortion had to be legal. And now they've well, done that. Isn't that they funny? And isn't isn't that funny, years, though, that that's his, that's his argument, right, for substantive due process in Griswold versus Connecticut, right? And all the different rights that, and that um, come from it, except, except Loving versus Virginia, right? So all of them are on shaky grounds, not explicitly the, in the, the Constitution. Uh, interracial interracial marriages. Right. Hmm, I, I wonder why. I wonder why he doesn't he, have a problem with that one. that one. He didn't. He mentioned every other substantive due process. He anchored he in the ex and exactly people <laughs> and, and exactly. Right. I so I don't want to hear too I mean, much. I mean, you're, from you're more of an Thomas. expert on this than I am. I, I don't know if there's is there a different theory of the law for that case. No, I, they're I anchored in the know. same. They're anchored in the same substantive okay. some substantive due process recognition of the right to privacy. The okay. same thing. The exact same. Again, I think all the <laughs> there should be interracial marriage. There should be contraception. I, I abortion. I have different. Uh, somewhat, I think it should be available in many cases. Um, mm -hmm. I would probably have a cutoff before you know, like the right. very end. Uh, like Europe has. We're learning that in many European countries, the ones con where their leaders are condemning us as like descending into Handmaid's Tale. Many of these states are going to implement. Uh, you know, cutoff points that are in line with what France itself has. It's like a 14 or 15 week cutoff or something. Yeah, 15 week cutoff versus at least 13 states with trigger laws and bans coming into place and proposing bans or whatever. Let's not act like that's mm -hmm. not happening because it is. And it's not just, again, it's not just the right to abortion. It's all the other rights that flow from it. And that's not that's not being alarmist. That's being someone who can read. That is what has happened, right? These are where they're, they're anchored in the exact same precedent. But additionally, the court explicitly provided the framework for getting rid of these. And Clarence Thomas said, hey, Hey, make no mistakes about it. If you are unsure, let me just let you know where I stand. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of those. So, mm -hmm. Well, we're going to be um, also looking ahead to some more big rulings still to come on immigration, environmental regulations, uh, church and state, uh, and more. So it's going to be a, you know, this very contentious Supreme Court term is not, uh, is not quite over yet. Um, I don't know what 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 else do we are we looking forward to here? You're, you're like, please make it stop. That's your. <laughs> I am suffering. I'm suffering greatly. But you yeah. know what? We'll get into this more later, though, Robbie. I'm looking forward to your radar next. Alimi, what's on your radar? For the first time in our nation's history, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. In a 6-3 decision in Dobbs versus Jackson, the Supreme Court destroyed almost 50 years of precedent and overruled Roe versus Wade, ending the right to an abortion. And with the loss of that right, many others hang directly in the balance, a fact that the Republicans and their Supreme Court are not only aware of, but they're counting on it, so they can continue legislating from the bench, which is precisely what they did here. Originally, Mississippi had appealed to the Supreme Court and asked only that the court review its 15-week ban under the then-law, which was blatantly unconstitutional. Then, RBG died, the Republicans put Amy Coney Barrett on the bench, and then, and only then, did Mississippi challenge the constitutionality of Roe altogether, which is in and of itself improper and unusual. They backdoored the issue. It was never litigated. Because they knew they had a court filled with Republicans who, despite all swearing in front of the Senate during their confirmation hearings, that they respected Roe 
as protected, long-standing precedent that the country has relied upon and assured the American people that they had no agenda to overturn, would be prepared to act in a manner Republicans would be calling judicial activism if it had been the Democrats doing so, or if constitutional principles and integrity were what this was about. Each year, the Supreme Court is asked to hear more than 7,000 cases. Of those 7,000 cases, they only choose a measly 100 to 150 cases. And they didn't choose to hear or decide new pressing issues. They chose to hear and decide a case involving long settled areas of constitutional law that the large majority of the country still supports because it gave them the opportunity to not just launch us into a dystopian future, worse, to move us backwards in time to an America without choice, not just for women, but for all of us. 13 states already had trigger laws on the books, which are laws meant to take effect should Roe ever be overturned, meaning there were 13 states poised to launch their citizens into the past the moment this day came, nine of which did so the minute the decision was issued and banned abortion. At least 26 states are expected to ban abortion altogether. One of those states are Texas, where Governor Abbott tweeted out that overturning Roe was the right decision because, quote, Texas will always protect unborn children from the ravages of abortion. This is the governor of a state that doesn't protect the living children in its care from being ravaged by AR-15s. The governor of a state that has had multiple school shootings, six of the 12 largest mass shootings in the country, but chose to lax the gun laws further and continues to defend them after three of its police departments stood idly by while a fourth grade class was massacred. Texas has one of the worst educational and foster care systems in the country, Texas has the highest infant and maternal mortality rate in the developed world and the lowest mental health care access in the country, the antithesis of protecting children or life. Yet, all abortions will be illegal in Texas by the end of July. Doctors could face life, up, life in prison and fines up to $100,000 if they perform abortions they've been lawfully performing to people who want them for the last 50 years. According to an AP journalist, West Virginia's only abortion clinic has already stopped performing abortions. The clinic begun canceling the appointments on Friday of 60 to 70 patients who had already been scheduled for abortions in the upcoming weeks. And some patients broke down and couldn't even speak through their sobbing, were stunned to silence, or just simply couldn't understand how this was happening to them. Despite an injunction making abortion legal in the state of Michigan, Michigan's largest health system, Beaumont Health and Spectrum Health, is following the 1931 state abortion ban, except for when a mother is going to die. Maybe you don't care about women and every other marginalized group that stands to suffer from the devastating ripple effects of overturning Roe. Maybe you don't care that women will die trying to seek now unsafe abortions. Maybe you don't care that women and girls will be forced to carry the babies of rapists, that women and girls will be criminalized for miscarriages they couldn't prevent, for medically necessary abortions. Maybe you don't care that states that have demonstrated absolutely no interest in providing for its most vulnerable populations now pretend to be their champions when it's time to force them to have children they will not help them provide for. Maybe you don't care about the inconsistency in the people decrying the government is violating their rights by being asked to wear masks for the safety of themselves and others in a global pandemic are now the same people celebrating that same government forcing women to carry unwanted pregnancies. Maybe you don't care that rich people will still be able to seek the abortions they need, but poor black and brown women and girls will suffer disproportionately. Maybe you've bought into the bad faith anti-choice propaganda that abortion is black genocide, when in reality, the maternal mortality rate for black women nationally is three times that of white women, and anti-choice politicians like Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy boldly announced that their maternal death rates are only bad if you count black women.
so we know how they really feel about both black mothers and unborn children. Maybe you don't care that about 4% of all newly incarcerated women are pregnant, and those women will be forced to carry unwanted pregnancies behind bars. Maybe you don't care about any of that, but do you care about yourself? Everyone's heard of Roe versus Wade, and I'm sure there are a significant amount of people who feel unaffected by Roe. But while I'd wager most of America hasn't heard of Griswold versus Connecticut, you will be affected by a world without it. Because without it, you not only don't have the right to an abortion and a string of other rights, you have no constitutional right to privacy, and that impacts us all. What do we mean when we say the right to privacy? In Griswold versus Connecticut, a married couple challenged the constitutionality of a law that prohibited married couples from using contraceptives. The court found that before the Constitution, we always possessed the right to privacy, meaning the right to make decisions in our intimate and personal lives, and the Constitution could not be construed to deny or disparage that fundamental right to privacy. In other words, the government has no business making decisions in our bedrooms, especially where married people are concerned because marriage is a deeply rooted institution in our nation's history. It's that fundamental recognition that allowed the court to not just recognize our right to use contraceptives, should we wish, which is why that argument that people should just use birth control in the wake of losing the right to an abortion is an uninformed one, but more importantly, eventually, our right to an abortion, our right to marry outside of our race, our right for people to marry the same sex, the right for gay people to have sex with one another, because yes, this country did criminalize gay sex up until 2003, and that's where they're headed now, and for the Republicans, always clamoring about a war on parents and your right to protect your children from being informed about history and the rights of others, it's also how the court recognized your constitutional right to direct the upbringing of your own children. But apparently, the only ideal rooted in our nation's history the court seems concerned with honoring and protecting is bigotry. Anyone telling you that you have nothing to worry about or that the rights aren't in danger is either disingenuous or not paying attention. Alito states that we must overturn Roe because the U.S. Constitution makes no explicit mention of the right to an abortion, which is both interesting and incorrect for several reasons. First, because the Ninth Amendment explicitly provides that we have constitutional rights that have not been enumerated in the Constitution. And two, the Supreme Court is only even able to hear and decide cases based on the principle of judicial review, which is nowhere to be found in the text of the Constitution. But he says this intentionally because he then lays the groundwork for overruling constitutional rights that protect women, LGBT people, black people, and every other marginalized group that the court has previously legitimized the abuse of, insisting that any right not deeply rooted in our nation's history is not a constitutional right. And to illustrate this point, he goes on at length about the fact that because America once criminalized abortion, that means they didn't intend us to have this right. Do you know who and what else has been criminalized in our nation's history? The entire LGBT community, who up until SCOTUS decided Lawrence versus Texas, were criminalized for simply having consensual sex with one another in the privacy of their own homes. The LGBT community, who up until Obergefell, just seven years ago, couldn't legally be married. Black people, who were quite literally enslaved by this country. And by Alito's logic, Slavery would be constitutional and in keeping with this nation's history and principles, barring the amendment expressly prohibiting it now. Anyone in an interracial relationship who up until Loving versus Virginia were criminally prohibited from dating and marrying outside of the race. This danger is not speculation, it is impending, which the dissenting justices explicitly recognized, stating, no one should be confident that the majority is done with its work. The rights Roe and Casey recognize does not stand alone. To the contraire, the court has linked it for decades to other settled freedoms involving bodily integrity, 
familial relationships, and procreation. Most obviously, the right to terminate a pregnancy arose straight out of the right to purchase and use contraception in Griswold. Alito weakly attempts to convince us that overturning Roe doesn't concern the other precedents it's anchored in, but the dissenting justices called he and the majority out for the flawed reasoning as either dishonest or hypocrisy. They stated, the majority is eager to tell us today that nothing it does casts doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion, but how could that be? The lone rationale for what the majority does today is that the right to elect an abortion is not deeply rooted in history. The majority argues that until Roe, people didn't think abortion fell within the Constitution's guarantee of liberty. Well, the same could be said of most of the rights the majority claims it is not tampering with. The majority could write just as long an opinion showing, for example, that until the mid-20th century, there were no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain contraceptives. So one of two things must be true. Either the majority does not really believe its own reasoning, or if it does, all rights that have no history stretching back to the mid-19th century are insecure. Either the mass of the majority's opinion is hypocrisy, or additional constitutional rights are under threat. It is one or the other. But if you still doubted the reality that all these decisions were on the chopping block, or whether Republicans were legislating from the bench, Clarence Thomas took the time out in his concurrence to make sure there was no confusion. He expressly said that the court had a duty to correct the error that is Griswold versus Connecticut's right to privacy and every right that flows from it, more specifically, the rights to contraceptives, the right to same-sex marriage, and the right to same-sex sexual relationships, except one right he left off his list, the right to interracial marriages, because he may not care about women or anyone else benefiting from the right to privacy, but he sure cares about himself. While seeking to overturn every right to privacy case that involved the rights of marginalized groups he didn't identify with, he was sure to exclude the only one that does benefit from as a black man married to a white woman, Ginny Thomas, who is currently under investigation for her role in the January 6th insurrection. If you doubted whether Republicans were disingenuous in their celebration of this descent into fascism as a win for states' rights, Behind the scenes, they've already begun planning to pass a national 15-week abortion ban should they gain control of the House and the Senate. And in front of the cameras, we have Congresswoman thanking Trump and the Supreme Court for this victory for white life. It doesn't end there. It's only a matter of time before we see these states start passing laws aimed at overturning these other rights and attacking the LGBT community in particular. Anybody who's been paying attention knew this was coming. Long before the draft opinion leaked and we all readied ourselves for what was to come, advocates have been warning for years that Roe was in danger and they were dismissed as alarmists. While that was happening, RBG refused to retire for no ascertainable reason beyond ego to the detriment of a nation full of women who had championed her. No matter how much people pleaded, she retire and give Obama the opportunity to appoint someone in her place. Instead, we ended up with Amy Coney Barrett. And all that doesn't speak to why, in almost 50 years, Democrats never made any real steps towards codifying Roe in the first place. We've allowed an illegitimate court to legislate from the bench in order to legitimize bigotry. So where do we go from here? If Republicans are so concerned about only valuing what's spelled out in our Constitution or what's deeply rooted in our nation's history, I cannot think of a better time to remind them that absolutely nowhere in our Constitution are we required to have nine seats in the Supreme Court. In fact, we started with six and we've changed the number several times. So nine seats is also not deeply rooted in our nation's history or what the framers intended. Democrats can either sit by or expect their voters to sit by while we lose right after right from this Republican court. Now more than ever, they need to pack the court and fight back. We're gonna end up with a court that's 
as big as our Congress. They'll pack it, and then the Republicans will pack it right back, and we'll just have a second Congress. You know, it's, it's so funny because so many things are like that, right? Even if you think of even the size of Congress and the committees we have, they originally had cases challenging that too, right? Mm -hmm. Scalia didn't want that. He said we would end up with JV Congress if we had, you know, committees yeah. and what we have now to make it functionable. And we did it anyway because we decided that was the only way that it was functionable. I don't, I don't think functional. nine people rolling back the rights of the country and descending us into chaos, because regardless how you feel about it, you have to acknowledge that there are a significant amount of people that are impacted, a significant amount of people that are gonna, not going to let this rock. You're going to see protests. You're going to see riots. You're going to see all kind of uprising because this can only get worse and at the end of the day you have to do what's better for the best for the people in this country not just holding on to in this case not even really precedent if you don't respect the precedent of people's rights i don't know how nine seats is yep. so sanctioned no, like, I, I, nine seats not sacred i absolutely agree yep. with you there uh they could do it i just don't know tactically the, the thing democrats need to do is just win they just can win elections and then enact laws. I mean, you, you like you could have a law that protects abortion rights. You could have a law that that actually says gay marriage instead of trying to read it in the Constitution. It's protected because we just passed a law saying there's gay marriage, just like what you had to do for slavery. You right. had to actually have a, a constitutional amendment to make it spelled out. We can't take that back because it's spelled out. If you spelled out these other things by actually having your people win elections and then do those laws, this wouldn't be this wouldn't be left to the Supreme Court to decide. While I love to criticize um, the Democrats, especially I have lots of fair criticism for them. Mm -hmm. In this case, Republicans did this not by winning. They did it by, by getting their people on the Supreme Court. And let's not act like they did it by all the most legitimate of means. They've they've mm -hmm. done some things in this year, right? From Merrick Garland, Brad Kavanaugh. There's a lot. There's shady. a lot that's happened. So let's not act Fair like enough. they didn't do what they needed to do to, to usurp this process mm -hmm. and bring us here. So in that case, the way they did it, Democrats need to play the game. I'm tired of us holding Democrats to a standard we don't hold Republicans to, and then it leaves the rest of us handicapped, okay? I'm not in the business of that. I'm interested in what's going to be best for the people and getting our rights together. I don't want to see a row happen, and now I watch it trickle down a rights until I no longer recognize this country. Mm. Well... well, I will tell you what's coming up on my radar next, so stay with us. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week marked the 50th anniversary of a very important and not well understood law that is called Title IX. So you may have heard of it. If so, you probably know it as the law that requires sex and gender-based equality in public education. Its original purpose, going back to the 1970s, the time of its adoption was to ensure that no woman was denied a spot in a school, the right to start a club, participate in a sport because of her sex. It's important, well-intended law. Women did face rampant sexism in all sectors of society, and education was no different. Now, how well the law actually fared in achieving equality, I think, is up for debate. My colleague at Reason Magazine, Natalie Dowzicki, wrote that Title IX did remove barriers for women and girls to participate in sports, but the implementation has been flawed with worse outcomes than anticipated. Now, obviously, the transgender sports debate is directly related to Title IX, and Rising Friday's host, Emily Jashinsky, talked about some of that in her radar on Friday. But I want to talk about a different aspect of Title IX, a curious one that dates back to actually just the Obama administration, a little more than a decade ago. The Education Department did something I think was truly bizarre. 
the administration's education department interpreted Title IX, this gender equality statute, as requiring university administrators to treat sexual misconduct and harassment as forms of sex-based discrimination and investigate all accusations on college campuses frequently with a zealousness that often sacrificed principles of basic fairness. Under Catherine Lehman, who was the Obama administration's Title IX enforcer, colleges increasingly moved to a single investigator model in which one administrator would investigate a claim of sexual misconduct, determine which witnesses to interview, and produce a report asserting guilt or innocence. Accused students were routinely denied access to legal counsel, awareness of the charges against them, and the ability to cross-examine their accusers and their witnesses. Hundreds of students, most of them men, not all of them, but most of them, were sanctioned by an educational institution attempting to comply with the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX. These sanctions were frequently challenged in court, and then many such students ultimately prevailed due to the underlying unfairness and the quasi-legality of these Kafkaesque proceedings. For many, however, relief comes far too late to resuscitate their college careers. Quote, Title IX is supposed to ensure fairness for both parties in campus sexual assault adjudication and not solely the accuser, says Casey Johnson, who's a history professor at Brooklyn College and expert on this type of trial. Unfortunately, however, as applied, Title IX too often has been used as a sword to erode principles of due process and prevent wrongly accused students from having a meaningful chance to defend themselves, end quote. So under former President Donald Trump, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos revised many of these guidances, uh, the guidelines relating to Title IX in order to create protocols that were fairer for both parties, the accuser and the accused. Now, the DeVos reforms underwent formal rulemaking uh, procedures, which gave accused students the right to consult legal counsel, have legal counsel scrutinize the narratives of the accused. The rules also allowed for non-adversarial restorative justice options in cases where both parties prefer this option. Sounds normal, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't someone accused of something have access to legal counsel, have the right to actually be aware of the charges against them without a single administrator just, you know, deciding this entire thing on their own? That's basic kind of due process, basic justice. It was, it was gone during the Obama administration. It was bought, brought back by Betsy DeVos. But now President Joe Biden has vowed to undo the reforms. Last week, on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, he took the first steps toward actually accomplishing that. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona proposed a series of revisions to the Education Department's Title IX approach that would gut due process protections embedded in the DeVos model. Cardona's proposal would once again permit adjudication via a single investigator, denying accused students the right to challenge their accusers. Schools would no longer need to hold hearings at all. They would instead be interrogating individuals during individual meetings, which they might not fully understand the nature of the accusation. So I want to go over the five ways this guidance is actually changing uh, the, the landscape for this kind of trial. First, Definition of sexual harassment is being broadened. The DeVos rule had established two types of sexual harassment, quid pro quo harassment, which is where an individual asks for sexual favors in exchange for employment or some other favor, and then also unwelcome conduct. Now, quid pro quo harassment only had to occur once to count as harassment, but unwelcome conduct harassment had to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denies a person equal access to their education. That's a definition comes straight out of case law. Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education is the relevant decision. So that was the DeVos standard. The new rules, the bar is much lower. Cardona would define unwelcome conduct harassment as conduct that is sufficiently severe 
or pervasive, not severe and pervasive, that based on the totality of the circumstances evaluated subjectively and objectively denies or limits a person's ability to participate in their education. Subjectively. Could be subjective. So opens the doors to Title IX investigations of speech that is sexual in nature and subjectively offensive to another person without it needing to be severe and pervasive. The free speech implications are significant. Legitimate classroom speech that was subjectively offensive and occurred repeatedly could now become a matter for the campus Title IX cop. Now, second, schools no longer need to provide hearings for accused students to cross-examine each other, as I alluded to. One of the most fundamental improvements of the DeVos rules was the establishment of cross-examination. Representative for the accused student, such as an attorney, had the right to scrutinize the claims made during this kind of adjudication. Under the new rules, no longer the case. Third, the single investigator model, as I said, is back. Instead, colleges and universities may once again use this model, which, just to be clear about what it is, a single administrator questions various parties privately, reaches a conclusion about the underlying guilt, often without any sort of hearing taking place. The new rules assert that investigators may engage in individual meetings with the parties where the parties never interact with each other at all. Fourth, accused students aren't guaranteed access to the evidence against them. <laughs> they aren't guaranteed even to the any of access the evidence against them. Under the DeVos rules, both the accused and their accusers were entitled to inspect and review any evidence obtained as part of the investigation. Not so under the new rules, parties will only be guaranteed access to a description of the relevant evidence, and this description need not be written down. Administrators can provide it orally or in writing. Fifth, university personnel would be required to report suspected sexual misconduct even if the purported victim opposes this. The DeVos rules clarified that post-secondary educators were not required to report suspected sexual misconduct following several cases, Title IX investigations, that occurred despite the supposed victim's contention that she had not suffered misconduct. A university official cannot declare someone a victim. That person, the alleged victim, must initiate the investigation. Under the old rules, under the new rules, not so. The Department of Education's proposed regulations seek to erase essential due process protections that are required by the department's current Title IX regulations. That's according to Joe Cohn, who is legislative and policy director at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. He says that they authorize institutions to forego live hearings, return to the single investigator model, and it's incompatible with basic fairness and basic requirements of fairness. This is a war. A war on basic fairness in college. It's a war on due process. It's a war, let's be clear, essentially on men, given that the overwhelming majority of young people whose lives were ruined due to these bad Title IX rules are men. And that's what's gone wrong with Title IX in general. Fifty years after this law became the law of the land, the statute is being used not to expand educational opportunities, but to narrow them for students who are accused of sexual misconduct and then subjected to blatantly unfair processes. The progress made in the last few years toward reestablishing fairness, justice-based hearings on campuses, that's being undone as we speak by Joe Biden. So I've uh, done a lot of reporting. Uh, this is a longer radar for me mm -hmm. than usual because I've previously done a lot of reporting on these rules that uh, were, were very, uh, the, the previous rules, the Obama rules, were very bad on due process grounds. Like if you're accused of something, you should have the right to defend yourself. You should have a basic presumption of innocence. You should have an attorney. You know, you fight for these things, I, right? You, you know. And I'm I was about to say we're in alignment. Know. I'm very, yeah. we're, in, we're in alignment, actually. Um, I think listening to that, I, you see a reflection of what our criminal system is in general. A lot mm -hmm. of our criminal system 
system is that prosecutors moving forward with cases despite that the complainants of who they're deeming victims have said no I don't want this case or this yes. didn't happen I'm not a victim and they do it anyway so I want to point out that this uh, egregious level of due process violation you're hearing in these laws does reflect our larger criminal system and so I do wonder whether or not um, generally not in your case Robbie but whether or not people's pushback to it um, that they don't have for the criminal system in general might be that a lot of the people most impacted by right. this on college campuses are white men um, as opposed to the black men that Absolutely. are victims in the criminal system but I, I do agree I think listen I, I am I understand. I, I understand. I completely credit and sympathize with the reality that most uh, people and usually women that are victims of sexual assault or sexual misconduct in this country do not have it taken seriously or have it legitimized or do not feel like they can reach out in the criminal system. But I think there is a dangerous problem of overcorrecting. Right. Mm -hmm. On one end, you have, OK, they never listen to women or the criminal system doesn't you know, respond well to sexual misconduct or rape or these things. But you can't have a system in place that does the extreme opposite, that doesn't because these are grave allegations. Right. I wouldn't even just say it's ruining someone's life in terms of um, just their college career. I think in general, because if people have been found, what people will think and they'll say, oh, you've been accused, you've been found right. guilty of sexual misconduct. Yeah, they didn't take it criminally or what happened, but they will that will stick with you in the same way. So I do think Ru it's, Right, ruins your job prospects. It, it puts you in debt. Your social a lot, circle. A lot of these people, you know, had, had student, took out student loans and now can't ever get a degree. Yeah. And yeah. You, you can't pay it off until you get the degree. Now you can't pay it at all. I, I think very often... Um, when it comes to, I see this conversation, I have this conversation a lot in my spaces because, you know, I'm an abolitionist, I'm anti-carceral, and very often I find that people who also say they're anti-carceral, their response is to create social systems or systems in other areas of our life dark that, a, that act the same way and carry out the same results. I think it's very important that you always have to have a process where you interrogate anything. Even if I think, even if I wanted to say on the majority of times, oh, they probably did. I think there are a lot more things that are um, sexual misconduct or exploitative or messed up that happen in terms of people's interpersonal relationships and all these things that we know or account for. So I recognize what they want to do in theory, but you can't just accuse people. Like, it, it's mm -hmm. absurd. They need, I think in a situation, I don't even think it's just, oh, a lawyer should be able to, you know, push back a little bit or hair it or scrutinize it. I think if you're making accusations against somebody, they need the full accusations. They need mm -hmm. exactly what they're saying. They need a lawyer. They need a cross-examination. This is very serious, even if, because if you think about it, right, in a criminal world, a lot of what is punished on, on college campuses aren't aren't and can't be really punished criminally. A lot of things that, mm -hmm. you know, language would be thrown out. There would be far less um, consequences in the criminal system, but yet here we have this college system and I've taken your education, your future. I think it's just too serious, regardless of whether or not you feel mm -hmm. in terms of right, wrong, this and the next thing and the larger implications for society. At the end of the day, we can't have this large system in place that just completely railroads uh, Under these new rules, they're going to, a single administrator is going to call you in an office, say, uh, uh, sorry, you were accused of, uh, let me, what is it again? It, it's not going to be written down. They're going to just say it. And then right. based on what you say in that, right. you're going to be like, what? Right. And then they go, okay, so denied it. Uh, okay, well, I think they're guilty. Like, that's going to be the whole, right. that could be under these new right. rules, the whole procedure, which is insane. And it is insane. And that's why I want to make sure I point out everyone that's here it and thinks it's insane the criminal system does move criminal like system that also they bad. move like that they they, they submit yeah. you evidence of something it's all redacted you yeah. don't know what's happening you can't actually get the paperwork your clients have no idea why they're there they've arrested people so in the same way this strikes you as fundamentally unfair remember this the next time i'm telling you about the criminal system i agree robbie that's great well thank you very much for that <laughs> and we will have more rising in just a minute In the wake of the Supreme Court's bombshell opinion on Roe v. Wade, a new CBS YouGov poll taken over the weekend shows an overwhelming majority of Americans disapprove of overturning Roe, and even more women disapprove. 
The moment has turned into campaign fodder for politicians, as Democrats, particularly those facing tough re-elections in the midterms, are wasting no time trying to capitalize on the Supreme Court's consequential decision. The top Democrat, Joe Biden, did as well. Apparently his campaign used the moment to ask for $15 donations. Here was one person's reaction to that. My rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. And if they're going to keep campaigning on this point, they should actually do something about it. Joining us now to discuss is the executive director of the Women's March, Rachel O'Leary Carmona, and associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so, Rachel, what do you make of uh, this kind of fundraising on the issue going on among Democrats? I mean, I, I, I would think, well, obviously they're going to fundraise on it. This is, a, this is kind of a lifeline to the Democrats at the moment they, you know, with the expectation that November was going to be a bloodbath for them. Here's an issue that does seem to motivate, you know, not just a lot of their base, but theoretically at least some, you know, moderate voters or, or, or voters who are disaffected with Democrats for whatever reason, but, you know, aren't, aren't fully socially conservative and whatnot. Uh, but then is there like a is there a not tactful way, I guess, to approach this for Democrats? You know, give us your thoughts. I mean, I think the, comp the, the issue is complicated, um, but I will say that, you know, the one of the challenges around Roe versus Wade and one of the challenges about, you know, other issues that um, have become um, tough or intractable for the for the country is that we've got an opposition in the Republicans who are pushing an increasingly unpopular agenda that can't win on its merits. And so they have to win by packing courts or suppressing voters or any of the ways that they're moving. Um, and that's that's real. And then we've got the Democrats who are not fighting for that, as, uh, fighting that as hard as they need to. And I think moving forward, what you're hearing is a shift in the movement in that um, we're not really going to distinguish between the two anymore. So I think that there is um, truth to that. And that said, a lot of what has to happen in order to create the conditions for social change is very unsexy organizing. Um, and some of that includes raising money. Um, and so I think that there is a critique there about folks who have done, you know, not enough on the issue raising money. Um, but I also think we need to be careful to not fall into the trap to think that fundraising or doing organizing work that isn't necessarily, um, you know, the sexiest thing or the most glamorous thing um, isn't what gets the goods. So I think we have to have a nuanced um, take. Right. But I think some people might find that the sexy and unglamorous, you know, organizing is not, in fact, being done by the Democrats, which Democrats, which I think you allude to. Right. It's like yeah, it's not the problem that. is that they need money. <laughs> it's that their money needs to happen in order to campaign on things or to fundraise. I think the problem is that we recognize Democrats have not been fighting this. They kind of sit idly by. In fact, they were actually very dismissive and um you know, dismissive and derogatory towards people who are actually warning of this exact issue that we're in right now for years. So I think that might be, you know, why people have this issue with, okay, on the heels of this, you immediately send out template emails that were already ready, like, give us $15, chip in and we can do this. Oh, well, why didn't you do it? And all this period of time you have, you know, what do you say to that, Liz? Well, I think we've seen a really, really interesting divergence lately. Uh, in public opinion, it used to be pretty evenly split in this country between pro-life and pro-choice identification. We used to have about, per Gallup and Pew polling, 47% of Americans identified as pro-life, 49% identified as pro-choice. Now, in the last few months especially, 
we've seen those numbers really diverge to the point where only 40% of Americans share my pro-life convictions uh, and about 55% of people identify as pro-choice. Overturning Roe is actually extremely unpopular. So it's interesting because the way I look at this is sort of we've had the pro-life legal movement and judges uh, that have been pushed through and and um, sculpted and molded uh, by the Federalist Society, we've seen uh, conservatives be astonishingly successful at getting them into federal court positions and especially on the Supreme Court. I mean, one way this could have been prevented was if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had stepped down uh, a Great. little bit you know, in advance uh, in a way that would have been secure and allowed uh, a Democratic president to be the one who you know appointed the next justice, but she she didn't do that. And I think a lot of commentators on the left have pointed that out very rightly. There hasn't been some sort of untoward court packing type thing happening on the Supreme Court. What we've seen instead is the fact that Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, the fact that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. Federalist Society has been astonishingly successful at this, but then on the pro-choice side, <clears throat> they've been astonishingly successful at the marketing thing. You know, we we shroud all of this in the language of reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And we so infrequently in our country actually talk about the stages of fetal development, our scientific understanding of this, how our understanding of viability has actually changed as we have more and more scientific advancement. And we rarely talk about what the actual abortion procedures are that are being performed. So I would say both sides have an obvious blind spot and both sides have an obvious strength. You know, I think you make a great point, actually, Liz, when you say that previously we were pretty evenly split down the middle when it came to pro-life, pro-choice, but that has changed in these months. And I think that speaks to what do you think about the idea that the country or maybe even just Democrats voter base is changing faster than the party itself is, right? And the party is not adjusting fast enough to the demands and the changing viewpoints of, of the party. Rachel, what do you think? I mean, I think that's spot on. I think, um, and I also think a couple of things. I mean, the, the first is that I think that's right. I think that the, I think that historically the people have moved the party and not the opposite way. Um, and so I think that that's, it's actually pretty historical. Um, and I think the second piece is that it's a little easier to be ideological um, when the stakes are not that you're about to have your rights rolled back. So many of us grew up in a landscape. I'm from Wisconsin. Um, I've lived in a lot of blue states where, you know, what folks would tell you is this is a right that will never be taken away from you. They don't take rights away from you. Right. Um, and so when you then are faced with a reality where there's a, an actual and real rollback of rights, I think um, the rubber hits a road in a different way and you have to really contend with and grapple with the issue that might be easier to kind of um, have an opinion about that doesn't ever feel like it has stakes, personal stakes for you. Um, and I think that we'll see those numbers continue to diverge, um, you know, as, as the reality of our post-Roe world, um, you know, really sets in. That's true. To be fair, I did see a lot of people that, you know, even people who voted for Trump in 2016 or people who identify um, as Republicans, very, very against this overturning of Roe. And I think they're, you, you got, both are speaking to something that is very fair, right? We've never had a constitutional right taken away, even though, like I said, there have always been advocates and people on the left warning of the moment that we're in. I think it's easy to say if something's never happened in the entire history, you know what I mean, of the country and certainly not in your lifetime, it's it's fair to think, oh, that wouldn't happen now. So I think, you know, that's why we're seeing this kind of broad, broad people are not happy with. Well, this I, I'm certainly picking up on a lot of Democratic fatalism. Um, the the conservatives I know are, you know, they're having a good time right now. They're, <laughs> they're, they're feeling like there's been a lot of 
uh, wins or a lot of pushback for them. Uh, their, again, their landscape for 2022 and, and in truth, 2024 looks pretty good. Whereas the Democrats, I know, are just like their Floundering. world is coming to an end, um, which, I, which I don't know can theoretically have... Uh, it, it, a lot of Democrats I know are, are so over it. They're not like, and we need to go to the polls and fix things. This They're very like, I don't want to participate in the system anymore. I want to like break my toys and go home. People didn't want to hear me, right? Weeks yeah. ago I said, Democrats need to start listening to the left. I said that the voter base is far more liberal than what they make it out to be in this kind of moderate yeah. centrist and people are becoming disillusioned with the Democrats. And I think what you're seeing now is even though, right, people who feel the Republicans are this, and I'm, you know, definitely on the side of I think this is bigotry, yeah. I think this is wrong, I at least concede Republicans serve their base. That's what, I, you know, I've maintained. And I think a lot of people are seeing and feeling frustrated now with, okay, vote blue, vote blue, I vote blue, I support the Democrats. These are who I need to support in order to fight the Republicans, but they don't fight. Mm -hmm. They don't fight. Well, Look at... Liz. There's also, I mean, there's also the other way around this, which is like, instead of doing the team red, team blue thing, which I find to be absolutely miserable, obviously, right. um, <laughs> the thing that we could do uh, or that we could have done, and I think now it's too late, the toothpaste is out of the tube and you can't stuff it back in. The thing that we could have done is settled on more moderate abortion laws uh, from the get go. And I think those wouldn't have fully satisfied the pro-life side. If you're somebody who believes like I do that life begins at conception, uh, you know, allowing abortion at 12 weeks isn't really something that's permissible. But still, you could have attempted to go after some sort of consensus approach like what Europe does. You know, Italy and France and, and Germany, a whole bunch of Scandinavian countries, pretty much all of Western Europe, um, you know, allows abortion up until week 12. In some rare cases, up until week 14 in some countries. But generally speaking, that's the rough consensus. That's that's what they allow there. Um, and yet in the U.S., we have states like in Virginia, you can get an abortion up until 25 weeks. I'm 25 weeks pregnant right now. I'm like huge. Uh, you can't see it on screen. You know, in New York, you can get an abortion at week 24. Uh, in most For blue states, reasons. in Illinois, it, yeah, I mean, in, in most blue states, you can get abortions at 24 and 25 weeks. And so what we've seen happen is we've seen pro-lifers advocate for total bans. And then we've seen a lot of pro-choicers and a lot of people in blue states advocate for allowing abortion up until a very late stage, up until the end of the second trimester, uh, which I think is, is something that per public opinion polling, you know, most people don't support that. They feel viscerally, morally uncomfortable with that. So something we could have done many years ago is pursue a little bit more of a sensible, safe, legal, rare type framework, which was sort of the thing that we were focused on uh, back a long time ago. And for whatever reason, we've really abandoned that. So I think that's a, a I think we also need to talk about the facts that 91% of abortions happen in the first trimester. And so when right. we talk about like who is, I'm, I'm curious about who we is in this situation, right. because I think that when we're talking about this, we are, we are talking about that. And then I also think that most people thought this was settled law. Right. And in, in, in the and and even the Supreme Court, you mentioned that there was no court packing, which I disagree with. Um, at least one of those seats was outright stolen. Um, and then other two were put in in very irregular um, confirmation processes. And and in those processes, those justices said, we will so. not overturn Roe. We, we think that this is a, a, a settled law. So I think that it's really difficult because the majority of the people have spoken and continue to speak. And we are talking about creating a law that actually does not meet in the middle. It is not a consensus it's not something that uh, that everyone agrees with even folks on the um you know red side of the aisle if that's how you're talking about it um don't agree with this and so i really think that we need to be careful in the way that we're talking about this because we we e even in this conversation we're spinning a narrative that isn't rooted in the in the public opinion and the way that folks are thinking about this on the ground 
Right. Well, the and Supreme Court isn't a majoritarian institution. And I think it's worth noting that, like, this is ultimately a federalist solution. What this does is returns the issues to the states mm-hmm. and allows my state, Texas, to uh, go from its its former six-week gestational age ban to now, uh, within the next, I think, 26 days or something, now it will it's be fully outlawed. Uh, and it allows my other state that I live in, New York, to continue to have extremely permissive abortion laws that ban abortions after 24 weeks. So, I mean, in terms of what this actually does, yes, it's not something that reflects the majority will of the people, which isn't necessarily something that we ask the Supreme Court to do. Um, you know, we can talk about whether that's implicitly what we want from them, but it's not a majoritarian institution. And ultimately, this is a federalist decision that returns this issue to the states. So but- that is slightly more local decision making, even if it's still impermissible. Uh, and even if people still aren't fully happy with that. Okay, but we say the Supreme Court. But I would say Texas is also my home state. And what I would say about that is that you cannot contend with abortion that goes back to the states while at the same time having over 30 pieces of legislation just in the last, you know, whatever, 18 months alone that also aim at restricting voter, um, you know, access. And so you can't say that it's going back to the states and also make a serious argument to say that the folks in the states are fully empowered to speak on the issue when we know that significant voter suppression and gerrymandering has happened, particularly in red states. And I'm glad that we brought up the bans, right? Liz, you brought up the bans because I think that's an important point in responding to your initial proposal, right? A moderate proposal, a world where we come to a compromise in between works with people that are willing to compromise or are interested in a moderate proposal. Here we see Republicans are not interested in meeting in the middle or, you know, incorporating the views of everybody else. What they want is a ban. And that's what they're in the business of doing. We already see at least at least 26 states are uh, suspected to engage in some level of a ban. And in response to the earlier point about the Supreme Court is not there to make sure they're doing what's uh, in majority majoritarian rule. But I'll say this, it does matter when you talk about evaluating the sincerity of a position. If we're arguing, oh, states' rights, it's about, you know, returning to the will of the people, but you're recognizing that they're not interested in what the people want or the majority of the people support and they're going to put bans in place. It is, in fact, not about the will of the people. So I do think that needs to be evaluated in that argument. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, apparently. But thank you both, uh, Liz and Rachel, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, says that he was assaulted by an employee at a Staten Island supermarket on Sunday. Uh, This is according to the police. The NYPD confirmed that Giuliani was slapped on the mid-back at a store right while on the campaign trail for his son Andrew Giuliani's gubernatorial campaign. Giuliani told the New York Post that he felt a bam on his back and that he nearly fell down, according to The Hill. Herod's footage of the so-called attack. All right. Well, he's an older man. I, you know, I can see how that would startle you. Um, Obviously, it's not a... I mean, watching that, I don't think anyone would say it's a particularly vicious um, assault or anything. Robbie, that does not constitute an assault. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think it meets the legal definition. Well, you tell me. No, no, it it definitely doesn't. And it definitely doesn't have the intent. That's a greeting. That's a greeting. How many times did we watch that clip before we process what was supposed to be? Well, I was watching the second, the, the kind of friendlier which the was, rub? I think, a welcoming... But that, in a normal world, people yeah. hail you. They walk back. That was an acknowledgement. Hey, you know what I mean? He touched his back. I mean, if he wanted to make a federal case out of it, it, it is technically, it's battery, right? Well, I'm, I mean, you know, it, it's, I guess it depends where you, it where you touch someone. If you touch someone, if you touch a woman like that on her chest, you're, you're, getting, you're, getting, is... you're getting battery, right? 
apprehension of an imminent battery, battery and intent. No, it just no. no. It doesn't. It does not constitute. I don't think it is a serious thing that should be to be that clear. That he called. Let's not. Let's not. We forget. It would be one thing. Listen, I can understand. Maybe he's old. Maybe his bones are brittle. So he, he felt it. Right. He was alarmed. He thought, you know, ooh, my assailant has come to get me. Right. But surely you realize after I have not been slapped, I have not been attacked. But he called the police. He was not slapped. He called the police. And he, and he talked to the uh -huh. post. Uh -huh. And he went on at length. <laughs> he doesn't need to still be taught. He's talking about it. Yeah, it's, it's probably not a notable, a notable thing. You know, I, I just want to say this. In recognizing how he moves, what he constitutes as assault, being greeted on his back. Mm -hmm. And it's Staten Island, okay? These, these, mm -hmm. It's Staten Island. That's important to recognize. Maybe if you were in Brooklyn and he got a good, mm -hmm. you know, it was Staten Island. They were not assaulting him. That was a greeting. But in him recognizing him like that, it makes me so much more aware why New York City under his reign was the way it was with the criminal system. Because if that's what he constitutes as assault, call the police. What if uh, what if somebody did that to Kamala Harris? You don't think we would be no, talking I'd be about like this Kamala, all day? No, I would be. I if, think no, we would if, be. Maybe you would. If Kamala, no, I, well, first I, of all, I'd be, yeah. I have a lot to, you know, Kamala's a prosecutor, a cop, you know, I, so cop, let's yeah. not act like I'd just be on Kamala's side. No, 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 no I'm not, I'm not so saying you I, would, I, say, I said they, not you. I they. would, know. we would be, we would be flaming Kamala, be like, wow, this is that prosecutor spirit in you. Somebody hailed you, somebody greeted you, and now right. you've been Karen, assaulted. Karen, yeah. All these real issues happening. Well, he's a Karen, too. They're all Karens. Chow, far worse. He is a Giuliani. He's himself. <laughs> like, you don't even need to give him a euphemism. He is who he is. That's yeah. not an assault. That's not an attack. Right. Okay. I, I don't think it is either, but it probably could be, right? If you tried to make a... Or, I mean, the police would laugh at you. They'd be like, are you kidding? No, I mean, right. it, it depends on who the parties involved are, how MIPD would respond yeah. to it. Um, have I seen cases for stupider things? Yes. Like, can they can they bring the charge if they choose right. to arrest somebody or something? Yeah. But I would see Because they can it. arrest everybody for every dumb exactly. thing. Exactly. Anything so many that stupid can... laws and yeah. we're all outlaws right now. We're all just one, they... you know, call to... It would more Nine, likely one, one be considered, um, har I feel like even if they wanted to have it as assault as a top charge, it would probably end up being harassment, which is, um, you know, intent to annoy. Harassment is so wildly vague. It's like intent to That's annoy. That's a problem. That's yeah. I don't, like, I don't like this harassment rhetoric. It's anti-speech. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's um, intent to annoy, cause alarm or anything like that. So even, they could get a harassment out of that, and then it could be dropped to a, dis a disorderly conduct and a violation and nothing happens because it's just not. Bad. It's just not that. Hmm. You can make it work. Intent to cause alarm. That's that Isn't is that ridiculous. That is itself alarming. I oh. feel harassed by <laughs> the definition of harassment being illegal. I mean, this is why I I, I warn against the uh, uh, very present kind of trend on the on the sort of progressive or mainstream liberal yeah. democratic media circles to call every to chalk everything up to harassment. I'm being criticized. No, I'm, I'm not being criticized. I'm being harassed. I, and, I agree uh, with well, you. Well, don't just... say that because harassment is illegal. And now we're going to criminalize perfectly legitimate speech. I, I, I agree with you, except I would say that Republicans are just as complicit in that, if not more, because the way any level of sure. criticism or commentary is, ooh, I've been canceled, cancel culture, cancel culture. Now you've been, well, well, you've been criticized. Well, some of it. Sometimes it's uh, it, it, it can't, the cancel culture stuff is wielded very often in bad faith. To, to, right, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not being canceled when her past insane statements are being brought up. I agree with yes. you. Yes, but there are people who are you know legitimately canceled uh, or illegitimately canceled. I if say, you are subject to a level of scrutiny, you are not subject. Public people that they don't deserve it. Can the internet and the that. public definitely turn against you and wage wage right. war on you and make it very uncomfortable? If you're not for a you? public person, if yes. you're just a random you know yes. Joe 
Joe person. Yes, but the general, oh, I've been I've been canceled because I've been criticized. Listen, at the end of yeah. the day, if you're truly canceled, I wouldn't even be hearing about it. Very often the people saying, oh, I've been canceled, I've been canceled, they're sitting from their media posts telling you how they've been canceled. They, they have an op-ed in the New York Times. Well, I don't got no op-eds in the New York Times, Robbie, so you can't yeah. be in the New York Times telling me you've been canceled. I can't get my arguments. I don't know about that. Robbie. Well, you, you know you what canceled is? You, just because they're giving you, uh, you're, you're able to get the message out yes. on the harm you've suffered doesn't mean you're not but, suffering. But yes, but but it doesn't, you can suffer harm, but it doesn't mean you've been canceled. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. Can people be criticizing you? Can yeah. there be a mass of people who don't like you? Can there be people who want us to not be paying attention to you or not feel like supporting your stuff? But you have not been canceled. You right. cannot possibly be on your soapbox, at a pulpit, able to still share your views, have a view, have an audience of people that are listening to you or people that are rallying behind you in some way and say you've been canceled. You have not been canceled. You have been criticized and disliked. I know. You're, we, we could go down, you know, <laughs> of the hundred uh, most prevalent cases of Saying this person was canceled, right? I'm sure we would probably broadly agree and say, well, this person wasn't Listen, canceled. They just Jesse Smollett was this at the BET won. Awards last night. What, so, what do you mean by that, Jesse? You know, you know Jesse. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you know what I'm yeah, saying yeah. like that's that's a prime person people would think. Yeah, <laughs> 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 that's a prime person people would think has been canceled. But like, he, but he deserved it, right? I, but but I'm saying say. he wasn't canceled. Or like at oh. the, you know, I, well, and I'm not jail. commenting on. Fair. They, they let him, they let my boy out, and I thought that was unfair. Um, <laughs> like, I just want to say, but my point is, you will have another day. You know, sometimes, yeah. you know, up and up, up and down, seasons, whatever, but I haven't seen anybody that's been canceled at any, any show up yet, unless, like, you know, like Epstein or someone who's passed. Yeah. <laughs> Aziz Ansari had to really go away for, like, a long time over... Aziz was, was gone. to me. I, I don't necessarily... They had to ruin agree. the third season of his show. Uh, yeah, but my boy came back, and me, he put out a full stand-up. He it was, was like shamed. a year. It was like... It was, Oh, he was, was a time in his... That's life. Okay, but it was BS. He didn't deserve it. It was a stupid... But, but the, the, the it doesn't make it cancellation. Article. Something could be unfair. There could be attacks. There could be ways that they go after certain people. All those things can be legitimate. I'm yeah. not saying that it is. I don't think every time someone... I they jump to cancel canceled, people... He was canceled. It was wrong. It was unfair. He was not canceled. He was... He was. Know, he would say that, but I think that... He was not canceled. He was, he was... He was like... He had a very successful Netflix special within, like, the year. And I know. I watched it several times. My boy was not canceled. It was, like, it was more than a year... I think I he, had to, think he had to fade into the background for a while. He was like, but that's sneaking not, around. You're not, you're not done. That's how life is. Sometimes well, you have a moment. Well, you know what I mean? Have to like it though. Yeah, no, I don't think you gotta like it. I just don't think it's cancellation. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, we're glad that yeah. uh, the former mayor survived. Oh, uh, child, no, I wish and, that it had been what oh, you really said uh, it was. Stop <laughs> uh, whatever you're gonna say. <laughs> More rising right after this. Former Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson responded to Roe v. Wade on Twitter saying, quote, if Democrats are thinking the fury of this moment will pass, then they are mistaken. If they think it will all turn into support for them rather than anger at them, they are also mistaken. Democrats should do something massive and tangible for people pretty much right now. Author Marianne Williamson joins us now to react to this moment. Marianne, so great to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So what is your sentiment, uh, you know, behind this tweet? Obviously, we're in a, in a moment where uh, abortion rights will be uh, rolled back in many states. And I see a lot of uh, pessimism from uh, Democrats. I think a lot of sense that their leaders 
have actually already failed them. And, and while, you know, Democrats are trying to, political figures are trying to say, this is why you need to support us, I'm hearing a lot of, and it sounds like you think this is a very legitimate way to feel, <coughs> that the, the harm was already done, that they were already being counted on and they failed. Well, they've had many opportunities over the years to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, president Obama had said that he was going to do that um, during his first campaign for the presidency. And when an hour after the decision came down, Nancy Pelosi was texting out a fundraising appeal uh, that we all needed to vote for Democrats. We all needed to send them money in order to codify Roe v. Wade when she herself had been down in Texas supporting the last supposedly pro-life, anti-choice Democratic candidate, Henry Cuellar, just uh, weeks ago. So the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party has been very difficult uh, for people. You know, 63% of Americans did not want Roe v. Wade overturned. And the Democrats have been using um, vote for us, vote for us, vote for us to save Roe v. Wade for a very long time. And the fact that they did not more, that they were not more vigilant about this um, is of course frustrating for people. At the same time, I think that it's not just that. I think that in the years, um, in the two years almost since um, uh, President Biden has been president, so many of the things that people thought, oh, if only we get the, the Democrats in there, these things will happen, whether it had to do with cancellation of the college loan debt, expansion of Medicare, uh, a more vigorous uh, environmental protection, et cetera. So yes, what I was saying in that tweet was that the Democrats better do something right now. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi read a poem and uh, the members of the House sang God Bless America on the Capitol steps, that was not the kind of vigorous political action uh, that, that many of us want. We want to hear about their ideas for packing the court. We want to hear about their ideas uh, for ending the filibuster. And the fact that the president has come across kind of like, yeah, it's really too bad. I'm stunned. I'm sad. Uh, of course, people are very upset. Yeah, I, compl I completely agree. I've been very critical of the Democrats in this regard. I think they don't do enough listening to their base. And in fact, I think in these years coming, this moment has actually been anticipated for years now by the exact people that they've dismissed and called alarmists, and they've really dragged their feet and done nothing. And I don't think that this is a, even though they're going to use this as an opportunity to try to mobilize, you know, support, I think this moment is actually serving as proof that the Democrats don't fight back. They don't do what we need them to do. Republicans are very... Um, engaged and committed to serving their base, but the Democrats are not doing that for us. And I don't think that this is inspiring hope. Do you have any hope at all that they're going to, you know, fight? Because I don't think they are. What I've seen from Biden and Pelosi and them seem to be a lot more of the same empty gestures and not even particularly lively rhetoric to support us even in what they're saying, right? They came out and immediately went to condemn and silence the protesters like, oh, keep it keep it cute, keep it quiet, you know, and then they're asking for money. But like you said, and this was something I actually pointed out recently, they supported, they say, oh, vote for us. That's how we're going to codify Roe. But then you see them supporting anti-choice candidates. So what is there to really inspire this faith? What do you think? Well, we have a choice between the abusive ones in the Republican Party and weak ones in the Democratic Party. So it's kind of like walking a fine line. You're so angry at them, but at the same time, you want them to step up. Right. Um, what you know, at, at, at this point, what's going to happen is that the Democrats will either, as you said, respond to their base or what we're going to they're going to be doing is simply inviting another uh, wave of MAGA candidates. You know, I live in Washington, D.C., and I had always heard that this city is like a bubble. 
it's more than that. Energetically, it's almost like a walled city. I understand yeah. how Trump got there because I understand that there's there's such an impervious, impervious energy here to the rage and the frustration yeah. and the mm-hmm. pain that people out there are feeling. And I fear that there continues to be um, almost a lackadaisical approach to the suffering yeah. of so many people. When you have... Uh, the majority of Americans who have to live paycheck to paycheck, when you have one in four Americans who cannot even afford uh, to get the the medicine that is prescribed by their doctors, when you have half a million homeless people, when you have people having to decide whether to pay their rent or to buy insulin, some political party, and it used to be the Democrats, were standing passionately, powerfully, unabashedly, and unapologetically for the working people of the United States. The Democrats need to become that again, or they will lose power in this country probably for decades. Something has got to change because the American people are seeing that this system is not working for them. And I'll tell you something, it's basic psychology. Mm. If daddy has has been beating you up and mommy has just been wringing her hands, and doesn't call the police on daddy and doesn't even leave daddy. But all she does is tell you that after you get your whooping, I'll give you ice cream and cookies. Or don't you cry too loud. Up to be more angry at mommy mm. than at daddy. That's, that's true. So that's true. That's very people true. people are so angry at the Democrats. Well, and in, in this time of chaos for the Democratic Party's agenda, supporters of Hillary Clinton actually <clears> took <throat> to Twitter to air grievances with women who were aligned more with Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, that's happened in the past, and it's happening again. We saw that one user had uh, tweeted, here's the list of women that are responsible for why Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Ridiculous. It's just a who's who of our show. Susan Sarandon, <laughs> Brianna Joy Gray, Nina Turner, Rose McGowan, Crystal Ball, Katie Halper, and uh, Marianne herself. Uh, any other women I'm missing, it said. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I guess Rising is single-handedly responsible for this. Imagine is, is a list a... and leaving out RBG. <laughs> a, list, a list of women responsible and RBG doesn't even get a head nod. Not that I'm blaming her in its entirety, but you would think. And leaving out James Comey. All I, all I can speak to is my own circumstances. I did uh, support Bernie Sanders in the primary in 2016. Once that was over, although I do think it was unfairly decided, uh, I absolutely uh, supported and voted for Hillary Clinton. And I think it's worth noting that if the DNC had not put their fingers on the scale, which they clearly did in that, uh, in that um, primary season, then the winner would have either been Hillary or Bernie. But either way, Democrats particularly would have felt good about the campaign, and I do not think Donald Trump would have ever become president. Mm. In response to the argument that if Hillary Clinton won in 2020, Roe versus Wade would not have been struck down, writer Ross Barakin said this, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's role in the death of Roe versus Wade looms even larger because it's not entirely clear Hillary Clinton would have governed with a Democratic Senate had she won in 2016. Most people assume Clinton's victory would have given her the Senate. As we saw in 2020, there were easily scenarios where the 2017 Senate could have been split 50-50 or even been 51-49 Republican with President Hillary Clinton. McConnell may have been blocked her, may have even blocked her for four years. Mm. Yeah. What do you think about that? People in Washington love to play that game. If this had right. been different, if that had been different. You know, the very fact that uh, when I was talking before about how people in Washington don't seem to know what's going on out there. 
we all know President Obama could have appointed Merrick Garland. And President Obama and others in Democratic leadership, I think, could have been more concerned about what would happen if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not resign. But everybody here just assumed that Hillary was going to win. That's why they weren't very concerned. Mm -hmm. But once again, they would have been more concerned if they had had more of a feel for what was going on in this country and the rage that people were feeling. That's the irony about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, like Donald Trump, did acknowledge the rage, the legitimate rage that people were feeling. So the Democrats had a progressive populist and they weren't going to go for the person who said, let's just keep it the way it is and continue on the success uh, of the last eight years because too many people did not feel that they were experiencing success. So people went for the authoritarian populist and they will go for an authoritarian populist again if the Democratic Party doesn't step up and do more for the working people of the United States in, the, in a way that matches their own rhetoric. Right. I think a lot of times, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think we forget when we, we criticize that Hillary lost <clears throat> and, you know, Biden won. We forget Biden didn't necessarily win because we love Biden. At that point, we would already learn from four years of Trump and people rushed out to get him out. At the time of Hillary, we simply, a lot of us simply didn't believe Trump was going to win. I, I remember, I'm, I'm not a U.S. citizen, so I didn't vote, so no one hold me responsible for anything. But I do remember being fundamentally shocked that Trump won. And I think that was a lot of the climate. There were a lot of people, I remember friends of mine, who didn't bother to vote. They didn't go out and vote just because they weren't interested. It was very, oh, it's the same thing either way, because no one saw it as realistic that Donald Trump would be president. So they didn't rush out for Hillary. I think in a world where we'd already experienced uh, Trump, people would have rushed out and voted for Hillary, too, just to get Trump out. So I think there is a lot of forgetting the, the times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I would I would be willing to guess that a lot of the people who told you they just there was no way Trump was going to win were in Los from? Angeles, New York, Washington. I travel the country a lot in my work. As horrified as I was, that Trump won, I was not that deeply surprised. Right. I had seen the rage out there and I had been deeply concerned uh, that the Democrats didn't seem to be hearing it. Mm. Well, Marianne, it's and they're a not pleasure. hearing it now. Right. They're not. It's a pleasure, as always, to have you with us. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. It's always great being with you. Thank you so much. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, Kim, I've been looking forward to this all weekend. Tell us what's on your radar. Well, I know there's been a lot of talk today about the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade ruling, but I just have to chime in. The phrase, my body, my choice, has become incredibly controversial because everyone seems to be using it, and yet none of them agree with one another. Here's what I mean. Look at this photo from a pro, is this from a pro-choice or anti-vaccine mandate rally? Good question. It could have come from either. The anti-mandate crowd, including myself, have been calling for bodily autonomy and the ability to decide for ourselves whether or not to take the vaccine. Many were saying, my body, my choice. Many in this category came from conservative America, the same conservative America now celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which will lead to women being required to carry pregnancies to term in about half the country. On the flip side, the current crowd yelling, my body, my choice, were many of the same people demanding others around them get the vaccine or lose their jobs and be shunned from society. It's a confusing time. How can a person be pro-mandate, forcing others into a medical treatment they don't want while being shocked that anyone would force a woman to carry a fetus she doesn't want? And how can a person be anti-mandate, claiming it's their individual right to decide their own medical treatment, yet tell a woman it isn't her individual right to decide her own medical treatment? It all feels hypocritical. 
But the people in these camps don't seem to see it that way. Now, I've looked around at some of the arguments from both sides, and I want to share them with you. Some of them are shockingly dense, and others actually make some decent points. So let's start with the liberal pro-choice crowd who were also pro-vaccine mandate. Now, truthfully, most can't give a good, solid reason as to why they're pro-mandate and pro-choice. Take a look at this TikTok video from A Chance at Life. What's important is bodily autonomy, the same right men have always had. We just want equal rights. The right to govern our own bodies, just like men have always had. It's that simple. Do you support the right for people to not get the COVID vaccine? It's irrelevant. Uh, right? My body, my choice. You're right. It's not irrelevant. Yeah, but one saves lives. You're right. It's one not irrelevant. One of them is going to be in a pandemic state, right? A state of emergency, which we all know laws change during a state of emergency. Do you agree with this, the statement or the, the principle of my body, my choice? Yes, absolutely. Bodily autonomy is a human right. Healthcare is a human right. Um, access to healthcare should be, not be something that is dictated by the Supreme Court. During the pandemic, did you support people's right to not get the COVID vaccine? It's a difficult conversation. Do you support bodily autonomy in other situations? For example, the COVID vaccine mandates the, the vaccine mandates we've been mandated to get vaccines for years and years and years so you do support in that situation people not having control of their bodies that's not that's not having not control of your bodies like i don't understand yeah so you know fairly flimsy reasoning there but there are some other somewhat better reasons people give the most common is because a virus is contagious and pregnancy isn't. That's the biggest excuse you'll use as to why a person is pro-choice and pro-mandate. The idea being that you should do everything you can to prevent infecting others. You'd then have to ask them, well, why wouldn't you want to infect others, right? And then they would say, well, because it could kill them. So you don't want to cause another person harm. Then when it's pointed out that terminating a pregnancy is affecting another person, the response is usually that a fetus isn't a person. So basically, their argument hinges on the debate over when cells become a person. In this line of logic, they believe in mandates for protecting people, but don't agree that a fetus is a person. So then we could say, what about the fact that vaccines weren't good for everyone? Some people were harmed, like the teen boys who ended up with myocarditis or women who ended up with blood clots. Why would you mandate a person take something that could harm them if your whole line of reasoning is to protect people? Another common response to being both pro-mandate and pro-choice is that vaccine mandates aren't really mandates. You can still choose to not get the vaccine. No one is forcing you, unlike a woman being forced to carry a pregnancy to term. That's the argument. It's true. No one was going to door to door holding people down and jabbing them. But not getting the vaccine resulted in job loss and being ostracized from society. It wasn't much of a choice at all. I guess they could lose their job and be unable to afford their homes or feed their families. But then you could also say that a woman isn't forced to carry a pregnancy. She could just fly to California. Now, I'm pro-choice and I'm anti-mandate. I firmly believe all medical decisions should be between a patient and a doctor, no matter what that decision may be. I'm even for giving people the choice to medically end their life if that's what they want. Decisions are difficult, personal, many are unique, and quite frankly, none of those decisions are any of my business. But the anti-mandate, anti-choice crowd have some better arguments on their side as to how they can be both and not be hypocrites. One argument is that it isn't about my body, my choice, or medical freedom, that it's about safety and health. 
They say they were opposed to mandates because they didn't believe the vaccine to be safe for everyone. They worried about side effects and other harms and forcing some people to take them would result in a slew of injuries and maybe even death. They say this is not out of alignment with being opposed to terminating a pregnancy. It's in fact very much in line. It's all about protecting lives. Now, this is the most common explanation as to why a person is both pro-choice with vaccines and anti-choice with pregnancy termination. Other arguments center around the vaccine being something done to yourself and an abortion is something done directly to someone else. But pro-mandate people say spreading a virus affects others. Then the anti-mandate people say these vaccines don't stop the spread. And then some actually say they would be for the mandates if the vaccines were sterilizing. So at least they're consistent. Another argument, don't laugh, or better yet, don't shoot the messenger. It involves the depopulation agenda theory. The theory is some people think the vaccines were part of a larger depopulation agenda, and typically they tie it to Bill Gates. The idea is this: the world can't sustain the growing population, and some elites are scheming to bring the population down to more sustainable levels. They think the vaccine was designed to help do this, but by maybe affecting fertility or causing a higher number of heart attacks or something. Obviously, Terminating pregnancies is also a form of population control, and they're against the whole lot of it. So you might scoff at this theory or think they're crazy, but at least they're consistent in their logic. And that's all I ask for. Be consistent and make sense. I might not agree, but I can at least appreciate a person who is fully pro-mandate or someone fully pro-choice or something in between as long as it makes sense. I just want it to make sense. So, you know, you guys, what do you think? I mean, which side do you think is actually making sense on this? Do you think anybody is making sense in that group specifically that is, you know, anti-mandate, anti-pro-choice, uh, or I don't like using the term pro-life, right. or, uh, or do you, on the flip side, you know, the crowd that's very pro-choice right now, very angry, but then they were the ones saying, take the vaccine or else. Right. Well, and, and this Supreme Court decision also, let's remember, just returns the issue to legislative bodies, to the states, the federal government, I guess, if they wanted to take it up, they don't, but by and large, the states. So just like, you know, we had a variety of state responses to, to, uh, to what the restrictions were, what the requirements were, et cetera, we'll now have that for abortion. So I, I, th I think in that way that the conservative uh, kind of view is, is not hypocritical in that sense, because there's especially with this news, right? They're saying, yeah, we, we're going to let smaller groups of, of uh, legislative decision makers, just like we would have let them say, you know, what the what the appropriate uh, re vaccine requirement is, whatever, where they'll decide what the what the uh, in this municipality, what the abortion policy is. I, I think it's still hypocritical when you look at it then state by state, because a lot of those conservative states that are going to be uh, making abortion illegal are the states that were fighting against the mandates. Yeah. Against the vaccine mandates. So, I, you know, you could look at it still in that. We'll see what Florida does in particular. That'll be really interesting. And they're kind of up in the air. Alimi, well, what do you think? Hmm. Um, so I did point out actually earlier in my own ra radar that I think there is hypocrisy to the people that are decrying, you know, government is violating my rights by trying to make me wear masks. I was talking about the mask, not the vaccine, but... Yeah, they, she, was, she was speaking our language. Yeah, she was, I was, said... Ole was talking some uh, mask uh, anger. I was getting I, very excited. I said, you know, I think, I think it's hypocritical that you would, you know, scream something as, to me, trivial, wear a mask, you know, is my rights are being violated, but in the same breath, you're pro, you know, women being forced to carry pregnancies to term that they don't want to. That being said, I right. think the conversation we're having is a reflection of why people co-opt language and the danger of that, because 
what happened here is the pro-choice movement in terms of abortion has already existed. My body, my choice is the language for that movement. And then you saw, you know, the anti-vaccine mandate movement appear and it co-opted that language and means to lend legitimacy to its arguments. So now we have this conversation where it's like, oh, how do you support one and not the other? Because that feels like hypocrisy. It's not. They co-opted the language and now we put them in the same arena and I don't think we really exist there. Um, and I think it's different because like I, for me, I think in the course of abortion and when you have these conversations about my body, my choice, it's because it impacts me, my right. body. Whereas the people who are were pro the vaccine mandates, what they're saying is, in this case, this is a pandemic. This impacts us all, which is generally the underlying well, and, argument that supports vaccines in general, because we have vaccine yeah. mandates but in general. Just, just like that, right, in, in, the, in the way that liberals will say, or supporters of vaccine mandates will say, well, no, that the, 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 the disease impacts other people, so mm. your bodily, your right to bodily autonomy, maybe so it was gonna, just you fine, it gets overrided because it affects other people. So you're going to say this, that this is, is what a child. conservatives and, right, will say about and I have that. A They'll say this affects a life. And I have a response. Right. Regardless, right. I don't even feel like we need to get into the a philosophical discussion of whether or not it's a fetus or it's a child or where it starts or any of that because the reality is unborn child fetus none of them have any any social standing as members of the society they have no rights they are not counted in the in the portion in our population at all so this conversation where we, we, we conflate the two is just it's non-existent they don't whether or not you think it's a fetus or a child neither one of them unborn none of them have any rights so this idea now but they that could but they, but they could I mean look I, I'm very very I'm, I'm very very pro-choice very pro-choice but I, I, can, I see the logic actually on the pro-life side. I do think that they hold very logical arguments and mm -hmm. it can be, and it's, it, it, I think they make sense. I, and you could make the laws change. I mean, yes, right now, sure, there's no rights for these fetuses, but it doesn't mean there won't be in the future. Do it doesn't think, mean that these activists are trying to make that do, happen. Do they you are. think that the people, the people that, the people that are generally anti-choice, the people that want the abortion bans are interested in affording rights to unborn children and fetuses when half the ch the current children, we have, this, this country has tons of children that are not being supported. We have children living in homelessness. We have children in foster care systems. Right, we of have course. children that don't have the research. Do you think those people advocating for that want rights for unborn children is that what they want uh, yeah I'm, uh, again I do think that they make logical arguments when mm. it comes to when they think a life begins and what is killing mm. that life they are you know that's where you have to draw that line you have to say when is mm. a person a person and that's the discussion but, to have but I, but I think we've landed on what I think is the disingenuousness of it right because none of us can say that we believe that those that they want rights for these unborn children and fetuses so what's it really about right you're you're saying oh well, they want it but it's the right not to be it's negative versus positive rights, right? They're saying that it, it, these, these, that the, the fetus at a cer certain point uh, is, is enough like a child. It has the right not to be destroyed or killed. But you that's don't care about children. Than, but that's, that's yeah. different than saying you have, a, you, know, you have a right to be taken care of or given support or something like that. You, know, you just have a right not to like, literally be right. killed. You have a right against violence. And, this, and but, they think abortion is exercising violence against a And person. that would be more believable right. in a society that supported children and took care of children and expressed no. the same kind of concern for children in all these other arenas. Why are we so, oh, this child has a right to live. This has, child has a right against violence. This child has rights, all these things. But you don't, when the child is actually here, when we unequivocally know that there are children, when we're no longer engaged in a debate of whether or not it's a child or it's a fetus, when they're here, we are not the same people advocating for this are not doing or advocating for resources and helping I'm saying, but the, a, a, a right to right. resources is different is, right the right then to the health right care to or education mm -hmm. or housing is different than the right to not be killed right. sure so like, what yeah. they would say is that these are not equivalent arguments a child that is living even if they're yeah. in foster care right now not being taken care of even if they're living on the street have the right to not be killed everybody has that right, right. that's what they would say they would to say learn? that's the 
That's the only thing that they care about is, do you have the right to not be murdered? I would think a better argument against them is, okay, what about war? So many of them are warmongers. And then you'd say, well, if you're such Mm -hmm. a, you're you're fine droning people Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan or now in Ukraine or wherever it is, you're fine, or in Russia, you're fine doing all of that. But at the same time, you say you you believe in the right for a person to live and not be killed. That, I think, is a more equivalent argument to make against them. But, but, you know, this is a big debate. It's a debate that... Maybe society. Well, I know. I know we won't. Uh, unfortunately, we won't see you at the pro-choice uh, rally, Kim, because you don't have your vaccine card. It is. I just. I do think it's a hilarious kind of hypocrisy. Um, so I'm glad you called attention to it. Uh, thank you, and we'll have more rising right after this. So we have some breaking news from the Supreme Court, releasing three new decisions, including. A kind of controversial one. This is a 6-3 decision ended up being in the school prayer case, a case I believe involving a coach who was praying on the field after the games, and he said he was obviously was not requiring any of his players to pray with him. That would violate uh, the First Amendment, but the Supreme Court ruled that that is okay. He can pray on the court uh, or the field afterward, and that's not uh, you know, infringing on the uh, establishment of religion aspect of the First Amendment. And then, so that's the big case. And then there were two other cases. One is, uh, is a, a so I'm just reading from SCOTUS blog here. SCOTUS sides with two doctors who challenged their convictions for unlawfully prescribing opioids. The doctors said they had a good faith belief they were prescribed for legitimate medical purposes. The government argued for an objective, not subjective standard, and that was a 9-0 decision, um, which is always, uh, those are always fun right. when <laughs> your argument was so bad that the, the, the entire Supreme <laughs> Court said, nope. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, I, obviously I don't know, you know much more about uh, these cases th- than what I said there. I Probably a lot of people will talk about the school prayer case in the same way the, uh, the Roe overturn, the Dobbs case is being discussed. It's like, oh, this is you know, our socially conservative handmaid's tale dystopia or whatever, requiring prayer, et cetera. But again, it's nothing, as far as I can tell, there's nothing requiring it or, or saying that, the, that they have to allow the team to participate in it, just saying that the coach himself can pray on the field. So, Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, I, I haven't read it myself. I mean, right. we just are finding out about this, so none yeah. of us have read this. But So it'll be interesting to see what their arguments were and the nuances on this one. But, um, you know, what, I, I, I mean, and I don't know, maybe, well, I mean, maybe you know this, but what are the rules when it comes to protest? I mean, we know with Colin Kaepernick, he was protesting, and that was controversial for people who are now championing the fact that you can pray on the field. So, and this was a six-three decision. That's kind of interesting. I wonder if it were about Colin Kaepernick and his protest, how would the ruling have been, mm. well, I uh, think, and w- what the rules are. I think they would be very different, right? The First Amendment. The Supreme Court has already decided on the issue of when it comes to kneeling and flags and those kinds of right. things, and already found that that is uh, permissible. So I don't even think I could see a constitutional challenge like that making it. The Supreme Court, not that. Let's recognize that we're in we're in a different world with the Supreme Court. Yeah. The current Supreme Court <laughs> yeah. is they are very prepared to abandon precedent. So. In yesteryear, I would say it wouldn't have been an issue because previously the Supreme Court has decided on issues like that and found it um, acceptable uh, in terms of covered and protected by free speech. Um, pro 
protests like that. In this case, First Amendment, um, when it comes to religion, establishment clause issues are, are very tedious. It's very nuanced, right? It could. I feel like I have to read it. I can't make an informed comment on it because it depends. And just hearing it, taking right. it at face value from what Robbie read to me, there shouldn't be any um, issues with. Uh, uh, he's a coach. He's yeah. a coach praying on the field. If he's and not, he was and he was fired. So I'm reading the decision now. So this is in the majority right. decision. They say respect for religious expression is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic. Here, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a personal religious observance based on a mistaken view that it has a duty to suppress religious observances, even as it allows comparable secular speech. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. Mr. Kennedy is entitled to summary that Kennedy is the name of the coach, yeah. <laughs> ironically. Yes. <laughs> Not that we didn't bring back Justice Kennedy for just like a one-off decision here, uh, is entitled to summary judgment on his religious exercise and free speech claim. So that's part of the debate, right, is that it, 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 different legal minds will say, well, does the First Amendment treat religion, religious speech differently from all other kinds of speech? And conservatives right. will say, no, obviously the government I, can't force religion on you, but when you're, if you're practicing right, religious, right. Uh, the same way you would practice political, the Kaepernick right. analogy is a good one, the same way you would practice that kind of political speech. No, religious speech isn't different. It's just not something the government can force on you. But if it's so, not being forced on you, it's no different than so, any other speech. So again, I got to see the case because depending, it depends right. on what the challenge is. Is it yeah. an establishment clause issue? Is he challenging that, uh, uh, were, were they, did they fire him because they were saying by do, him doing this, he was somehow, you know, forcing the other people or, right. that, I think or were, making the university the, appear the, to be... If the school lets him do that, then, then the school saying we're, we're doing establishment of religion. And right. I'm inclined to say no. no right. I'm inclined to say yeah, no. And there have been a lot of Supreme well. Court opinion, opinions and decisions when it comes to even just things they've challenged, you know, the presence of the Bible there or, you right. know, different, um, you know, religious uh, monikers and things. And, and the Supreme Court has found that those things... Right. Are you can't have just the Bible. Yes. But if you had, you know, as other, uh, yeah. as, as uh, historical icons relating to the law, that would be. Uh, yeah. yeah, based on my superficial well, I, understanding I think, of this case, it seems it seems fine that he didn't he didn't violate. Yeah. But I, I, I've got to know more. I could I could read the case, come back and have an entirely different opinion. But based on what well, I'm hearing, especially since three of the justices did not agree. And I would imagine right. that was the liberal bloc. So what I makes this yeah. really interesting. Right. And so that's what makes this interesting is that the liberal bloc, uh, theoretically, hypothetically, would have voted differently if it were about Colin Kaepernick and the right to protest, the right to prayer. Apparently, they don't agree in this particular case. Again, we don't know exactly the details of this one without reading it. But also, I would add then, what about a Muslim teacher that wants to pray or needs to pray five times a day at specific times of the day? Are they not allowed to do that? You know, by by the logic of the liberal justices. Again, That's a great question. They're entirely. Question. I want to make sure we're fair on the legal aspect of this. We're, we're conflating, right? They're free. They're entirely different doctrinal threads and understands and court rationales when it comes to freedom of speech and speech and protest versus uh, religious right. establishment. But that's clauses. religious. What the example she just gave is religious. But, but what I'm saying is what is being challenged here, right? In the in the Kaepernick scenario, it's whether yeah. you're right. That's protest speech. Whether or not that is permissible yeah. by itself, right? And then here. We have to figure out whether or not they're challenging making an establishment issue and also whether or not the facts, the facts that we just read to right. them, 
that's a that's a quick reading of the facts of the case of someone's yeah. right. viewpoint. So we got to know what the what the opposition was arguing and how their characterization of what actually was happening there, yeah. what they were alleging. So we got, then, I got to know. And then I didn't mention the third yeah. case is uh, pertaining to the First Step Act, actually. Uh, so the, the Supreme Court has clarified how district courts should assess prisoners' requests for reduced sentences under the First Step Act. SCOTUS rules that district courts may consider new developments such as evidence of a prisoner's rehabilitation or intervening changes in the law. And this was a 5-4 decision with Thomas and Gorsuch joining the three liberals. Kavanaugh dissents joined by Roberts, Alito, and Barrett. That's kind of interesting there. You're, you're oh. very upset with uh, Clarence. And, today, and I will be. He's, uh, he's, and uh, I will be. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be. Like, he, he could do, you know, he could do something something nice. Doesn't change the mm -hmm. egregious things he does. Mm -hmm. well. so. He is so radically conservative, isn't he? <laughs> he really is. And but, can, but, we'll but radically conservative until we're talking Loving versus Virginia, and then it's a different song. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll see what, he, what, what the thinking was on that particular case as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. Very much. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Dr. Trita Parsi will break down the real reason President Biden is engaging with Saudi Arabia. And we'll dig into why voters of color are leaving the Democratic Party with our Rising panel. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check out our podcast. Uh, it's downloadable anywhere you download podcasts and want to listen to us on the go. Be sure to mm. do that. All right, guys, yeah. thank you so much. We're so happy watching. to have you back with us, Kim. We missed you while uh, you were gone. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. I'm glad to be back. It's oh. nice to get back into it and fight the good fight. Fighting the good fight. <laughs> discussing, discussing all the stuff. Uh, yeah. It's always, always good, yeah. good to be back in Monday. I like, coming, I like returning to work after the weekend. I mean, does that make me weird? I, it's fun <laughs> to get back in the chair and discuss all these issues. Listen so. to Robbie, always the teacher's pet. I am, I am, I am a huge teacher's pet. They make yeah, fun of me. That's hilarious. I deserve it. <laughs> all right, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. This weekend, the G7 summit began in Germany, where the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson allegedly told French President Emmanuel Macron that a peace deal with Russia would cause enduring instability and give Putin power over the world. However, a new survey from the European Council on Foreign Relations found that most European countries are in favor of a peace deal. You can see in green, that's the support for a peace deal versus the pink bars that are in favor of continuing to support Ukraine in the war. And you can see Italy, Germany, Romania, France, Sweden, Spain, and Portugal all side more on the, in the peace camp. Meanwhile, the UK and Poland are the only countries who favor continued support for the war in Ukraine. In Italy, the fight over arming Ukraine is even creating divisions in its biggest party. According to France 24, the anti-establishment populist five-star movement split over sending weapons to Ukraine, where dozens of lawmakers from the party defected to a new group led by Italian foreign minister Luigi Di Maio, who supports continued military aid. So, yeah, this is, you know, the, the, the consensus that, uh, and, and look, everybody, you know, is very uh, sad for what's happening, obviously, to Ukraine. The devastation is horrific. And, you know, there was a, a lot of sort of, I guess, consensus maybe in the Western world, at least the European kind of American axis uh, from the get go. But, you know, I don't the people <laughs> there was a lot of elite consensus to doing something. I don't know that the people necessarily supported it. And, and now here we are where we just really want the clear message, I think, from the people is is to bring this is try to bring this to an end where it's like the endless supply of weapons 
is not going to be something just, you know, going on forever. And uh, and that's right. what the people want. And their political parties need to listen to that. But I don't know. Kim, do you think these people are even are they paying attention to that? Like I, I saw the pictures from this event. Have you seen the pictures? They look like such a sort of. I don't know, boys club. They look like they're going to have a yeah, night oh out on the town And they're all wearing matching outfits. Did you notice during their photo yeah. session? I, I, Somebody planned this where they're not wearing ties. They're all wearing, you know, they're all wearing a blue suit of some kind. <laughs> yeah, like Sog- Sagar, uh, our former host of this show, uh, was uh, complaining about the lack of ties, which I'm not sure. He was saying this shows the their their disinterest in heeding their constituents, which I'm not I'm not quite sure how oh, to agree with that. But that's they, going they a wore far. ties. They wore ties during the meeting. Then they did this photo op, and then they were all wearing this. It was like a planned, coordinated outfit. Did you see these like pictures? We, no, I what we clearly do. See if I can what, find What them. people accuse us of doing. We don't actually coordinate our outfits here on the show, but it looks like we do. But it, we did, but, did today. Uh, we uh, right. we magically coordinated today. Yes, you but and I they, psychically I, coordinate. Bree and I uh, uh, clash in, in many yeah, things. Yeah, look at this. Oh, look Trudeau. Oh, yeah, They're look all at wearing navy. Like except Trudeau. him. Trudeau wore the gray suit. Everybody else wore a blue suit. I wonder mm. if he did that on purpose just to stand out. But listen, you know, I think this really shows us this meeting and this this kind of um, the poll about how people are feeling about this really shows us the disconnect between the establishment and the establishment media and real life what people are thinking. Real life when, you know, I I see it all the time. It's anecdotal, but I see it all the time, even on Twitter, whenever Reuters or someone will put out an article about Ukraine and sending weapons, the comment section below that is always, we should be calling for peace. Stop doing this. Stop wasting money. We have record inflation here in the United States. We've got other problems to deal with. We don't need to be sending billions and billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine just to keep the military industrial complex happy after Afghanistan got shut down. And yet, The media made it sound like, no, everybody in the world is on board with this. Russia is increasingly isolated, which is just bullcrap. That's not true at all. Russia has instead been partnering with China, India, Indonesia, um, Iran, Turkey. They have now created their own new G8, really, of powerful nations that are increasing in their GDP. Meanwhile, the United States and other Western nations that are sanctioning Russia are falling behind. So you've got this. You know, the, the, the media telling us one thing, and they've been telling us from the beginning of this war, Russia's about to collapse any minute. They're going to run out of everything. Everything's going poorly for them. And they just keep gobbling up land in Ukraine. So that, that I think this just shows us, you know, we can't trust the establishment media. We can't trust the establishment leaders. They're not really representing us. The people have a different thing in mind. Are they going to listen to us? That's a big question. And why is the UK so invested in this war? That's another thing. To distract from the scandal that uh, the, the apparent the political scandal consuming the Boris Johnson uh, administration, right, is this whole party gate situation. Do you know about this? That they held yep. these um, the, the UK obviously had very strict covid rules. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out that uh, members of the administration are alleged to have violated them. They had some kind of, of parties or something. Wait, right, which of course. Which... <laughs> I don't know if that's a big enough scandal to justify supporting, you know what I mean, to kind of hide that. It's like... a pretty big scandal. It almost, it almost uh, Boris Johnson survived the vote, but it almost took down the whole the whole government. I mean, you know, we, we were well, mad about that kind of... all the governments are collapsing. They're all collapsing over in Europe. I mean, they're, they're yeah. being voted out. And I think a lot of it does have to do with, again, these the policies around COVID. They, the media made it sound like everybody was on board with this. And it just doesn't look to be that, that way. And that's what we're finding out even now with, like, the shots for tots. Kids aren't... Parents aren't lining up their kids for it. So the media tells us one thing. The establishment politicians, the establishment media tell us, tell us one thing. They gaslight us into believing this is what everybody thinks, and you're just the outlier and the weirdo if you don't agree. 
And then the reality unfolds and it's different. And I think that's what's happening even in those countries that are getting elections. You've got France, you have the UK. We're going to see a big sweep potentially here in the US. I don't know if Roe v. Wade will change that. But we're seeing these governments all, all across the Western world that are being uh, shaken up quite a bit. And it's mm. because people were not in line with these policies. Meanwhile, Western media is reporting that Russia will be forced to bring its offensives in Ukraine's eastern Donbas to a halt, according to Western intelligence. Secretary Anthony Blinken doubled down and added that Russia's advance in Donbas will, will not have strategic significance and added that in terms of the war, Russia has already lost. Blinken and the president will be in an, at the G7 summit in Germany with other world leaders and NATO allies. According to a White House fact sheet, the leaders will make an unprecedented long-term security commitment to providing Ukraine with financial, humanitarian, military, and diplomatic support as long as it takes. If they've already lost, what are we doing? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Is it over then? <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, and they, they do have somewhat of a point. I mean, Russia taking over the Donbass region, they already pretty much had a de facto control over it, but they are gobbling up more of that land in the Donbass area. So, uh, you know, those are independent. They, they declared themselves independent after their, their civil war in 2014 that they've been engaged in for quite a while. And so Russia actually going in and, and having more involvement in those areas, it, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. But they are spreading and they're getting, you know, and Russia's spreading and spreading and probably going to get to Odessa and who knows what else they're going to end up taking. Mm. Yeah, it just uh, just keeps going on uh, without right without a lot of interest in what the people actually think. You know, we're dealing with the catastrophic um, price increases gas price increases, and the sanctions just totally failed, which right. could have been anticipated, as many people were saying, that they will fail and that they don't usually work. And, you know, Russia reaped record oil profits because of it. And it just, it, it's not, it's, but we we stick at these things, these foreign policy commitments, sometimes years, decades beyond what there's right. political will to do. With our obvious detriment, yeah. visible. Yeah, so anyway, we'll have to see. All right, well, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay tuned.